Welcome to the Loop Ventures podcast. This is Doug Clinton. I'm on with Sean Higgins from Better You. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on again. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. So this is the third in the series that we've done here of podcasts on tech addiction. And this time we want to talk about, as Sean has very eloquently put in an email where we exchange thoughts about this, the institutional value of digital wellness. And so we kind of want to talk about what does tech addiction mean for schools and for businesses. And so we've talked a lot about kind of the hacks, how people can take control of technology, erasing social media, some products they can use, better you is one of them. But Sean, how do we see the problem in schools? I mean, obviously every kid has a phone now. What is the issue with tech addiction in schools? Completely. I always tell people that, you know, my generation is kind of one of the last ones that'll remember what it was like to be 10 and not have a phone. You know, you have this kind of contract with your parents that they're going to pick you up from soccer practice and you just kind of wait there and, you know, wait till they show up. But what's so interesting is that, you know, when kids are getting phones, so most kids will have a phone by the time that they're 12. And so you're kind of right in that elementary school age, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And it's interesting, you know, because so many folks have access to phones, it's things on distractions in the classroom. It's ways that they're spending their time, right? And a lot of it will tie back into anxiety, stress, and mental health. But from a school's perspective, especially at that level, so much of it is how can we help keep our kids focused on what's most important, whether it's meeting people, making friends in class, or, you know, learning some of the different material. And really, it's those types of pieces where schools are facing the brunt of the tech addiction issue. I think it's, you know, in addition to the attention issue, just paying attention and getting value from school. The other thing that I think a lot about with schools is just the propensity for bullying, right? I mean, bullying in school and people who are school age, I think it's, you know, a higher propensity for younger people as it is for older people. And I remember actually, I was reading some research. I think that Jonathan Haidt had referenced and he wrote a book about free speech in universities. But I think it was relevant where he was saying that boys usually do not actually have that much of an issue with bullying. Like their bullying is physical. It's one-on-one. It's in the real world where bullying with girls is more psychological. And so when we think about these depression studies that we see where there unfortunately has been a change of personal harm incidents among younger people, particularly at the school age, that's one of his theses is these tools, these phones are almost like weapons of mass destruction in the hands of girls where they do this psychological warfare where men just still beat each other up on the playground. It's so interesting because, you know, you think about the number, right? Like just the amount of access that folks have to engage in that type of behavior online, right? I mean, you've got this pool of people, some of them, you know, some of them, you kind of tangentially know, and it's easier than ever to end up on the wrong end of that spectrum. And think about it from the school's perspective. So elementary schools, even high schools, they'll have counselors on staff. But if you're a decent sized high school, you know, you're not going to have really enough people to manage that type of an issue, especially at the scale that it happens I remember it was a study specifically on bullying in schools where it talked about either in person or online. It was about 40% of folks aged 13 to 17 
were likely to have a bullying incident within a year. And I was just blown away by that idea. And you think about life as a high school counselor, like what are you supposed to do when things are happening at that scale? You're overwhelmed and you're definitely in demand. I'll tell you that. But in terms of solving the problem, it's a tough one. Yeah, it is. And I'd be curious kind of your take on it because I think of it as there are people who are in place in schools to assist in solving the problems. Like you mentioned, the counselors, also the teachers, maybe the teachers are more on the attention side. The counselors are maybe more on the behavioral side, but those are still one-on-one relationships. And so they need tools as well. So how do you think about both their role as people in the real world that try to foster these changes in students and the tools that they need to do it effectively? I think the role of a lot of those types of counselors, it's going to be more of the role of an activator. Instead of in the past where they were doing a lot of the one-on-one direct work with students, in order to really address the problem at scale, they'll have to be you know, using resources that educate people on stress and anxiety. Because so often, especially with students, you know, you don't really know that you're not doing so well. Right. Like the fact that you haven't talked to your friends in a couple of days or haven't gotten out of the house in a couple of days, that doesn't always register that something's wrong. And so connecting students with relevant resources, a lot of times what we'll see are content based resources. So getting students awareness around, hey, here's what the signs are. And that's one area where I think a lot of folks will have success. The second, of course, is recognizing how we're using our time on device. So are we using that time intentionally? Which apps are we spending our day on? Are we spending our day on apps in general, period? And thinking through kind of that opportunity cost of really where we want to be spending our time. So through those two avenues, I really see the counselor of the future at a high school being able to, one, connect students with relevant content so they know when something's going wrong. And two, give them resources to better manage their day and where their time's going. How do you think about incentives in that structure? Like I know one thing we've heard and seen, I guess, to a certain degree is some teachers will actually even give credit for students that use certain applications that keep them off their phone during class time. So do you think that incentives are an important component of adherence in schools? I think it varies by level. My experience with incentives has been more at the college level. And at the college level, it's been very effective. You know, you'll see folks that will run different campaigns around wellness, health, stress, anxiety, mental health. And some of those little incentives, it's crazy to me, the amount of movement and momentum you could get from a coffee at the local coffee shop. And some of those things, whether they're rewards or kind of more academic incentives like you're talking about, I think can definitely move the needle. I'm curious to know more on you know how that would affect kind of the younger group of students. I kind of wonder at some level, you know, when you're developing, to what extent you know what you really want or can weigh those decisions. But certainly at the higher levels, you know, high school, you know, students all the way to college students, I'd see that incentive side definitely helping reinforce the right behaviors. That's a good point. The younger a person is, in some ways, the incentives become more difficult because somebody in college, you know, giving them a free coffee to your point, and we've definitely seen that. That's an easy thing where someone says, hey, this is of value to me. If you're 12, though, or 13 or 14, it probably has less value. A lot of things like that. I mean, they might want, you know, who knows, Fortnite points, right? And then that's creating another problem. Right. <laughs> yeah, go, Wait a minute. Totally <laughs> circular in that sense. But do you think that based on age, 
Is there an, a different incentive structure for younger kids? It's not something we've thought much about yet, but it seems like maybe there's an answer there. You know, it's tricky. I think to echo your point earlier on this side, at some level, kids start to figure out kind of what they want. And it's interesting. They did a lot of studies around customized learning. It was a school out in California. Actually, it was a great school. And they took really young kids and they asked them what they wanted to learn every day. And I felt so bad for this teacher, Doug, because he had to administer, you know, 30 different lesson plans a day. It sounds like a nightmare. But after a while, you know, initially kids would say, oh, I want to just, you know, play or color or draw or, you know, do whatever it is, kill time. But after a while, they got really bored of that. And they started actually doing things like science because they saw their other friends doing those things and having a good time. I think at some level, you definitely do kind of learn what you want, where you want to be spending your time. I'm not sure exactly when that happens. I think when that threshold hits, though, and maybe it is by the time that students are 12, they're able to really get a lot of motivation, intrinsic motivation from spending time on those things that matter. I think that's a really powerful insight. When something is interesting to you, you don't need to be told to get off your phone. You know, like you can become naturally engrossed in a topic. I remember like for me in school, I was a difficult student because I just didn't find a lot of the stuff interesting. You know, I did okay, but I also didn't have a phone. So it was either, well, you could kind of pay attention or you could doodle in your book or you might fall asleep in class. And so like in some ways, the attention problem and maybe the behavioral problem is a separate thing, but like the attention problem has probably always been a problem. And to your point, like there may be something where it's almost like a holistic tool that combines avoiding the distracting and sort of addictive nature of devices that we're fighting against, but also add that to making sure that kids are engaged with the content in a way that's engaging for them, where they actually are learning something. They're excited about what they're learning. I haven't seen that tool yet, but I hope someone builds it. Right. I completely agree. What's mainly in the market today are a lot of monitoring and kind of gating apps, right? So if a school is rolling out iPads, for example, they might have a limit on how late you can use your iPad outside of class or how much time you can spend. Even in certain apps, you might limit social media apps or certain other apps that you don't want students to spend a lot of time on. But there isn't anything on the other end, which is more of that positive end of, hey, let's help students find things that are interesting and engaging and are going to spur the learning conversation. Although if you were to ask the folks who bought the iPads in the first place, I'm pretty sure they'd tell you that's why they bought them. But <laughs> it is a tough trade-off, I think, in that sense. Having built Better You, what are some of the things that you've seen as you've interacted with customers kind of in the market from the education side? A lot of it boils down to this idea of scale. You think about where we've spent our time in the market, and it's mainly with colleges and then obviously businesses. But on the college side, folks recognize that student mental health is a big issue. And you mentioned it earlier, right, with issues around you know suicide and self-harm and things on that side. And it's really even all the way down through stress, anxiety. I first heard this from actually a local school in town. They said, Sean, by our estimates, one in two of our incoming freshmen will have a substantial issue around stress or anxiety in their first year of college. And when I heard that, I thought it was really high. But as I talked to more and more schools, I learned that that was actually pretty average, pretty comparable for what most people expected. And it was such a crazy realization that people know that there's this big problem and it's almost like they've got their hands tied behind their back when it comes to solving it. You still have institutions whose plan is to go out and hire a small army of counselors 
And you can't help but sit there and kind of scratch your head and go, wait, what, what are we doing? You've got 20,000 students and you're adding 20 counselors. How are these numbers going to work? How many 30 minute meetings is this person going to do? Yeah, there's only so much time in the day. Totally. So we found that really helping schools engage with students from a health and wellness perspective, helping them reach students that maybe aren't using the services very frequently, those are both areas. There's a lot of appetite for higher education and digital wellness because they know it's a problem and they're looking for innovative ways to help their students. At the end of the day, it impacts their biggest numbers. Things like retention, how many students stay with us semester to semester, things like persistence, who's taken classes every single opportunity. And that's how a lot of these groups are measured and evaluated. And so it's been a big benefit for them to be able to share. And so from a university standpoint, higher education standpoint, where do you think the responsibility falls? Like, is it on the administration to try to find the right tools and then make sure that students know about them? We talked about the teachers and some of the incentives they can give. Where do you think the onus lies with that? In terms of the administration, there's usually a group around student success. And their number that they kind of hold up, their North Star, is really around graduation rates, student retention. And that's a group that's always been looking for creative ways to help move the needle for their students. And so I think that is a group that is definitely forward thinking about wellness, digital wellness, etc. In terms of the individual classrooms, the teachers, I think that gets really tough in college settings, just in terms of how the pie gets sliced and divvied up at a college. Usually the individual teachers have a harder time making purchases. I think if there's some freemium or free options, I think then maybe having a classroom approach wouldn't be a bad idea. Certainly at high schools, I think that could work. But the more condensed you get the students, having something that's supported by the administration becomes more and more important in order to get the reach that you need to have to make an impact at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. On that note, let's shift to the business world, kind of thinking about administration. You know, we're seeing some of the same trends as people translate from university to business. They have the same habits in terms of attention. They have the same addiction to smartphones that so many of us have. And so productivity is kind of the issue there instead of learning and attention, right? What are you seeing at the corporate level and how is it different than education or maybe even is it different than what we see at the educational level? It's a similar problem. In some regards, I think it's more well understood. In terms of that, so there's a study that CareerBuilder actually did back in 2016. It's one of the studies that gets quoted a lot around worker engagement. And in that study, a large group of employers, in their perspective, they said that they felt that their employee base was productive for fewer than five hours every day they were there. And when asked why, devices actually was a top reason. 55% of these people said, hey, it's because we're getting pinged from notifications, we're getting distracted. And what's interesting is when you ask a lot of employees in that same survey, they asked the employees of these companies, and over two-thirds said that, hey, we're on our phone several times a day, We keep our phone within eye contact. That one was over 80% of the respondents said our phone is, it's right there. And it's just a few things. One is this idea of switching costs. 
So if I'm working on something, you know, a lot of times it takes you 10 or 15 minutes to really get in the zone. And then you get that little notification and your phone's with an eye shot. You glance down at it, you think about it, and suddenly you go, wait a minute, what was I doing a minute ago? So that's at its core, kind of that central issue of distraction. The other issue is when we're on device, right? How are we using that time? And there's a number there from Adam Alter who does a lot of research in terms of are we using our devices in ways that make us more happy or less happy? He found that certain types of apps, entertainment, news, dating, social media, tended to make us less happy with how we were spending our time. But it's that category that we end up spending three times the amount of our time on device towards, which is also interesting. So I think it's both of those issues. One is that the distraction problem, and two is when we're using our time at work on our devices, how are we spending it? And is that informing how happy we are on the job? I think the switching costs you mentioned is something that I think a lot about where even if we talk about five hours of productivity, if you incorporate switching costs into that, I wonder if that number is actually misleading and it might actually be lower because probably some of that is like gearing up, like you said, the 15 minutes to get in the zone. And because the phone pings us so often, the switching element is so frequent. Is it as easy as companies just saying, hey, you have to put your phone in a locker or you have to put your phone on airplane mode? Like, are there these sort of low-hanging fruit solutions, do you think, that would work? Or is it something else that needs to be done? Well, I think you run a lot of risks by asking people to take their phone and put it out of sight or, you know, lock it away because there are a lot of good uses for your phone on the job. I do a lot of phone calls during the day. I'll do a lot of, you know, like Zoom meetings sometimes on the road and I have to plug in through my phone. And so I think you want to trust enough to really let them use the device they're bringing with them to work. But at the same time, you want to make it easier for them to not end up getting distracted. And I think some things can be recommendations you make, but there are several things that you can do to make it easier. You know, you can turn off notifications, get rid of badges, things on that side. But there's still that risk that you end up in the wrong app and you end up idling a lot of your time. I think in terms of employee productivity, you know, having different app-based solutions around that, it's something that's interesting. It's a direction I haven't seen many companies in digital wellness tech addiction take. But I think it's definitely a part of the opportunity there. It makes sense. I think that you know another point that you alluded to is when you're context switching a lot and when you're distracted a lot in work, it could, number one, be a reflection of how you feel about your job. But on the opposite end, it could affect how you feel about your job, period, right? Like if you are not being productive and you always feel like you've got so much on your plate and you can't get anything done, but part of it is because you're only working five hours a day, there's a weird cycle in that sense where it actually negatively impacts how you think about your work if you let yourself be too distracted. So I would imagine from an employee perspective, if employees understood that, they might be more, not even open, but they might even want solutions to that. Absolutely. You know, there's a question I learned from Matt Raskin at Jamf. He would always ask, which companies run without people? And I know I'm big on AI, but like currently nobody raises their hand, right? Because like every company needs people. And you think about how your people are engaged on the job and how happy they are or fulfilled in terms of what they're doing. And I love this point, Doug. It's this vicious cycle, right? Where if I'm overwhelmed and I'm on my phone a lot, the apps that I'm using might be making me feel not as happy with how I'm doing. And it can easily spiral into I'm unhappy, 
I'm unhappy with this project. I'm unhappy with my job. I got to get out of here. And so you see a lot of things on attrition. And it's interesting because we've talked about retention. as kind of that core metric for schools, colleges, especially. And I think there's a bit of that here, losing your people, having to train in someone else, having just overall lower satisfaction from your employees with what they get to do every day. It feels like there's a lot of parallels to the focus on health, just broader health in the workplace, where there are obvious corporate benefits to employee wellness from a health perspective, mental and physical. And there's also personal benefits to health. I guess, how are we seeing companies tie this concept into the broader health initiative? I mean, that's exactly where we play, right? With Better You, uh, we focus not necessarily on the productivity side of things, but really much more on helping people make better decisions, better use of their time. And I think that is the common denominator, right? Because it's like anything else, where you spend your time, that's going to be the things that you get better at (laughs) over time. And so for us, whether it's helping people spend time talking to family members or friends, because that's one of the powerful things that we get with our devices, right? The ability to to FaceTime someone across the world in some cases is amazing. Or whether it's, you know, getting a reminder to go for a quick walk, or if you're on your phone late at night to go to bed, I think there's so many different tie-ins that you can have with elements of wellness that are really well-established. Things like physical wellness, whether that's sleep, fitness, social wellness, connecting to people, learning new things. At the end of the day, companies know that wellness is a big part of their business for one, an employee happiness perspective, but two, most big companies are paying for their wellness through their self-insurance costs. And so being able to improve the health of a population over time is definitely an element that they're thinking about. And so I think from that perspective, there's a lot of opportunity to help people really make better use of how they're spending their free time today. Let me bring in the sort of incentive question for the corporate setting where, you know, you just mentioned companies spend a lot of money on health for their employees. What is the right incentive structure to encourage digital health for companies' employees? I think it actually is a very different from traditional health and wellness. So if you've ever used or been a part of a large organization, right, you have that software that you use where you check in once a year, you tell them you went to the doctor and you tell them you're not a smoker. And yeah, they, I go to the gym every week. And yeah. 100% and you get your 50 yeah. bucks. And it's totally um, the honor system. <laughs> and it's something that you do maybe once, right, before you renew. I think for digital wellness to be effective, you need to incorporate things on a more regular level. Because while I may not go to the doctor every single month, I have my phone on me every single day. So making sure that I'm actually doing you know, the right things with it, it becomes a little bit more tricky to motivate on that side. So I think it's more regular types of goals. And the other thing that I really like about it, if done correctly, you know, one of the things that we receive the most positive feedback around a better you is the fact that it's very low touch, right? The sense that your phone, if used correctly, can help keep you accountable. It's no longer the honor system. It's my phone saying, really, Sean, you know, we're on Netflix right now. You said we should be sleeping. What's going on? (laughs) It's very true. And that point actually brings up kind of my next question, which is privacy, right? Like, do you even want your company to know that you're on Netflix either the night before or maybe on your break or maybe even during your shift? How do you get around that? Oh, absolutely. I think this is exactly where the conversation goes, right? Because it's something that as an individual, you feel, right? You say, wow, like this would help make my life better if I had more control over how I was using this time. 
and organizations, they say, hey, this is something that's really important. But this is exactly the point on the privacy side. It seems like, you know, every weekend we turn on the news and we see something about Facebook doing something crazy and you kind of scratch your head and go, what is going on? And so I think having a very forward-looking approach to privacy, you know, whether that's your GDPR compliance, whether that's just being really transparent and open with what data gets used, how does data get shared, giving people the ability to opt in to sharing instead of making it an opt out just so it's easier for people to be protected if they don't realize that stuff gets shared. I think at a baseline, you know, as long as you're taking the data and anonymizing it, right, in any type of aggregate reporting you're doing, like that's just the table stakes to play in this space. But ultimately, digital wellness companies will have a big responsibility just because of the wealth of data that's on a device. And so you want to make sure that if you're working with a company that is in digital wellness, that they're very forward thinking and that they're all buttoned up in terms of how they handle the data and the privacy. That's absolutely true. And a tangent to that too is almost like the big brother element. If you invite your employer in to look at what you do on your phone, you don't want to give them too much access. So I think that's a really important part too, is not just making sure that you feel your data is safe, but that you have control over kind of what you're sharing and what you're allowing your employer to see. Exactly. It's so interesting. You know, when you talk to employers about how they'd use some of this insight and you talk to employees about what they're comfortable with sharing, it differs a lot from person to person. Some people will say, man, you know, if I really tell my company that I want to learn Spanish and they're going to send me out to Mexico City for a week or something for a seminar, that's amazing. But on the other hand, you know, I don't want them to know that I haven't talked to my family in five days. That's kind of embarrassing. I haven't called mom yet this week. So you get some different levels there, definitely. And I think as long as you're really putting the power in the hands of the end user and building for that individual, that person, I think you'll be on good ground. It's the basic headline test, right? If what your company does from a digital wellness perspective were to make the front page of you know, the Wall Street Journal tomorrow, would you show your parents that headline or would you be a little embarrassed and upset that it's there? That's a good point. It's such a unique problem, I think, that trust on both sides, but particularly the people who are using these applications to help their digital wellness. I think trust is going to be such an important part of the companies that deliver those services. I think about how Apple is really branding themselves around trust right now. And I think in some ways, there's probably a strategic reason for that beyond just like it's the right thing to do, but their ambitions in healthcare Like if you want to deliver a healthcare product, a wellness product, if you don't have trust, you're going to have a really hard time (laughs) delivering it because the data is so sensitive. And I think the same thing kind of applies in the digital wellness space as well. Trust is going to be a really important part of the brand. Right. Even though there's a lot of appetite from institutions to purchase different solutions to help their people from whether it's the mental health side for students, whether it's paying attention in class, productivity in the workplace, I think you have to be very careful to not overbuild for the institution and underbuild for the actual person using the product, because that's where you'll run into issues where you overshare or you have opt out instead of opt in and people don't realize it. And it just takes one incident like that. And it's so hard to regain that trust when it's gone. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Sean. This is a topic that, you know, we keep saying this, but we're going to keep talking about it. And I'm glad we got to dig in a little more to both how schools and companies are approaching digital wellness 
And I'm sure we will be talking again soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Doug. All right. Thanks. Thanks.